Thank you. Good morning. So my wife and I were on staff with Crew, Campus Crusade for Christ, for almost 30 years. And uh, we put on a conference that was super well attended every year. It was called Senior Panic. You can imagine undergrads, they get to their senior year, and now suddenly it's like, what does God want me to do? Should I go into ministry or go into business or the arts or move to Chicago, New York? What should I do? And so I did a presentation at that conference. It was kind of manipulative, but it was super well attended. The name of my session was God's Will Revealed, is what I offered to everybody, and they just packed it out. Um, so I did reveal God's will to them on the macro level that this is what God calls every one of those undergrads to. But the good news is this equally applies to you. This is God's will for you. C.S. Lewis said, life is made up of first things and second things. Get the first things in place, the second things follow. So I'm going to reveal to you via the Apostle Paul what is God's will for every one of us. And then we're going to think a little bit deeply about how we can actually enact that will on a daily basis. So... Let's turn to the scriptures, so stand with me as we receive God's word. If you can't stand, just put yourself in a position of reception. And let's even still our hearts to hear what God has to say via his Holy Spirit. So turn off cell phones, turn down the internal noise, and just say, Holy Spirit, I give you permission to sift my life. I give you permission to apply the word to my specific circumstance. So let's just take a minute and uh, prepare our hearts. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 17, Paul says this, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Now all of these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You may be seated. So this is what Paul says to the church in Corinth. And this is what he would have us here today. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. What a great truth. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm in martial arts, and because martial arts is based in the East, uh, a lot of new friends in my life these last three years are Buddhists. And we, we have to stop demonizing other religions. There is no point in doing that. Uh, Buddhism is a very old religion. It's followed by a, a vast majority of the world's population. The Dalai Lama is regularly picked as the most trusted religious speaker in the world today. He's done that five years in a row and ranked that highly. Um, C.S. Lewis said, I think God's truth permeates everywhere. So can we learn from Gautama the Buddha? The answer is yes, we can learn from him. Do we have disagreements with him? Of course we do. One of my favorite thinkers at Biola University just wrote a book called Confucius for Christians. 
Christians. That we can even look at what Confucius had to say and glean God's truth from it. But let me give you one big area that we disagree with Buddhists. So my Buddhist friends operate under the law of karma, which means they have good days, bad days, just like the rest of us. I mean, we all have good days, bad days as followers of Christ. But the problem with the Buddhist is you rack up bad karma. Bad thoughts, bad actions, uh, this bad karma follows you everywhere you go. Just because you rack up good karma does not wipe away bad karma. You will experience the negative effects of bad karma. Jesus is the ultimate karma buster. He will have nothing to do with karma. He says, you are a new creation. My forgiveness for you is I give you this do-over in life. What a powerful do-over. That all of your sins have been forgiven past present, future. Yeah, it may be that your spouse never forgives you, but God has forgiven you. It may be that those kids never come back and forgive you, but God has forgiven you. God loves you as much as he ever will right now because it's all based on Christ. We don't operate on karma. Remember, Paul himself even said in Romans, wretched man I am. I do the very things I don't want to do. Well, in a Christian system, you're not racking up karma. So one great truth from the Apostle Paul is you're a brand new creature and we don't operate under this law or even the operate under karma. Then he goes on. Now, all of these things are from God. Listen, God didn't have to reach out to planet Earth. We made our bed. We rebelled against him. We forsaken his principles. We looked at his kingdom and said, no, thank you. God could have just let us sit there. He didn't. He came after us and pursued us. He reconciled us to himself through Christ. It's so powerful to remember every once in a while what it cost Christ. I mean, Jesus died on a cross naked, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer to why God has forsaken Jesus is because he took on the sins of all of you. He willingly did that and lovingly did that. So now God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. Now this is my theological belief. It's a hotly debated topic. I do not limit the atonement. Now there are very good theologians who do for good reason. I do not limit the atonement. I think John settled this issue. He said Jesus is the propitiation for our sins but for the sins of the entire world is what um, John said. So think of that. Jesus died for every man, woman, and child who's ever lived. Let that sink in for a while. Let that sink in when we think about terrorism today. Let that sink in when we think about the Taliban. Let that think in, sink in when we think about Nazi Germany in World War II. Jesus died for everybody because he loves everybody and wants to reconcile the entire world back to himself. If possible, he would reconcile everybody back to himself. So he doesn't want to count people's trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We've received that. Then he goes on and says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making his appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So men and women, that's your marching orders. That's what I told those undergraduate students, and that's what I'll tell you. I don't care if you're in ministry or full-time business or the arts. I don't care if you're married, single. The big picture of your life is you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. God desperately cares about your non-Christian friends, family members, and co-workers. He died for them. Now, in an interesting twist, God said, though I deeply love these individuals and my Holy Spirit is working in the heart of everybody, I primarily will allow my church to do this. So Augustine said, without God, we cannot, but without us, God will not. 
So God is saying to the church, yes, I want to reach Fullerton, and I want the church to do it. Yes, I care about your non-Christian family members, and I want you to reach them. I've given you the ministry of reconciliation. Now, how many of you know of a non-Christian that doesn't have Christ? Raise your hand. Okay, me as well. How many of you know that person, but you've not presented the gospel? Raise your hand. Okay, me as well. But the question is, why? Why? That's an interesting thing to wrestle with periodically. Why have I not shared the gospel? Something that has radically changed my life, that has made me a new creature, I reap all the benefits of it, and yet I've not passed this on to my non-Christian family member. Let me offer two reasons. One, I honestly think that we have a lack of training. I honestly think we just don't know how to do it. We don't know what the gospel is. We, we don't know how to start a conversation with a person. How many of you and that very same person would come up to you and say, hey, would you mind telling me how to accept Jesus as my personal savior? How many of you would have a conversation with them and tell them what to do? Absolutely, but that like never happens. So we have got to find ways of starting the conversation in a way that's not threatening and isn't off-putting or nor offensive. We've got to find a way to do that. But Paul takes another reason, and I think this is the really convicting one, of why we don't share our faith as much as we should. This is what Paul says. In Romans chapter 9, he says this, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. This is a man who just wrote Romans chapter 1 to 8. He has listed all the benefits of being a Christian. And now he says, because of the unceasing grief in my heart towards my non-Christian Jewish brethren, I'm willing to give up my salvation. So here's the question I think we need to deeply wrestle with, and I'm in the exact same boat. Do I have unceasing grief towards those people I know who don't know Christ? Does it keep me up at night? Would I be willing to give up my salvation for these individuals? You know, John Stott, when the great Christian statesman, he passed away a couple years ago, he said this, I'm calling the church back to a tradition of tears. I don't see enough tears among us. Think of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Think of Jesus in front of Jerusalem weeping, saying, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you to my arms, but you would not. Have you ever shed a tear for a non-Christian? Have you prayed for that person and been so overwhelmed that you started weeping for that person? Now, let me take the pressure off. I have not. I don't know why. I honestly don't know why. Do I believe it? Do I believe in eternal judgment? Do I believe Jesus loves these people and died for them? I think this is a time of wrestling for us as a congregation. We all know non-Christians. God's put us in some unique places, and yet we're tentative. So let's take a moment of reflection. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to sift our hearts. And let's ask this question concerning non-Christian friends or family members. Do you have unceasing grief towards their predicament? Let's just ask the Holy Spirit to inspect our hearts for a minute.
Um, First step, we ask God to soften our heart. God, let me see these people through your eyes, your perspective. But then we ask the question we ask in rhetoric. I teach rhetoric. Rhetoric is public persuasion. Not one-on-one persuasion, but public persuasion when groups try to persuade each other. Well, in rhetoric, we always talk about how do I start a conversation? Particularly when I know this conversation is dicey, it's going to be tension-filled. I know people really disagree with each other. Can America relate to what I'm saying right now? Yes, job security is very good right now, okay? So because Americans, we're wrestling with this. We don't know how to talk to each other anymore. So God is sympathetic to your predicament. God is sympathetic to the fact that you've not shared the gospel with these people that you know. Why? Because I think we just have this pit in our stomach, right? Uh, When Barna Research did their research of 20-somethings, non-Christian 20-somethings, and asking them to describe evangelicals with one word, you know what word they picked? Judgmental. We feel like you're judgmental. Second word was uncompassionate. Isn't that interesting that that would be mark us? So I think we hear that and we go, okay, I do not want to be known as being judgmental. So I'm not even going to come a mile of talking about Jesus and offensive things that Jesus said. See, everybody loves a Buddhist version of Jesus. They love Jesus if he's like this social worker that just goes around helping the poor. Everybody loves that Jesus. But there's the dark side of Jesus, I like to say to my friends. He said some pretty wild things. He was pretty judgmental. Ask the Pharisees, right? He believed he had truth. So, how do you start a really difficult conversation? Well, God has done a great favor for all of us. He has hardwired the human heart for a starting point. It means that every human being is experiencing something at the exact same time. Amazing to think about. In rhetoric, we talk about village moments where most of the world is thinking about the same kind of thing or the country is thinking about the same kind of thing. Certainly the Oscars tonight would be one. It'd be the Olympics. It'd be the... um, the uh, election, it'd be 9-11, things like that. Well, God has hardwired the human heart that all of us are feeling the exact same kind of emotions, and that can be the starting point. So here's what I want to do for these two sermons. Um, I want us to think about what C.S. Lewis had to say, and I want us to have a way of bringing up spiritual conversations with our non-Christian friends in a way that I don't think will be overly threatening at the beginning of it, okay? Now, God's truth is God's truth, and eventually you get to exclusive claims that Jesus said, well, that's just part of our calling, is we represent what Jesus said, and he said it. I didn't say it. Don't kill the messenger. Okay, so <clears throat> C.S. Lewis said this. We always have to quote Lewis. We're under contractual obligation as evangelicals to quote C.S. Lewis <laughs> at least once. So this is my contractual obligation. Lewis said this. God shouts in our pain. He whispers in our pleasures. Interesting. He shouts when there's tragedy, but he whispers in our normal pleasures. That's what I want to take a look at this morning. The pleasures that you experience and your non-Christian friends experience, there's something about your pleasures, your joy, that can actually be a great opening to the gospel. Okay, So, uh, Steven Spielberg, one of his early movies, was called Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He imagined that aliens came to planet Earth, not to take us over, but they actually wanted to make contact with us, but they don't want to freak us out, right? They're of a higher intelligence. and they're, you know. So what they do is they hand-select certain individuals, and they give you an image of a place that you're to meet them. It's a place in northeastern Wyoming. It's an actual mountain, okay? So you have this image planted in you, and you cannot get the image out of your head. So some people uh, paint the image with watercolors. Another person does sculpture with the image. They just cannot stop, 
okay? And eventually they go to meet the aliens at Wyoming. I think God is sending out an invitation to all of humanity. Meet me here. Now, it's not a physical location. Meet me in your greatest joys and desires, and that's where you're going to find me. Okay, so I think this is really biblical. Uh, take a look at what Psalm 42, 1 says. Just as a deer pants for water, our souls thirst for God. Every soul thirsts for God. Now we get confused and we, we settle for a human lover. We settle for a job. We settle for money. But all of us deep down inside, we're like a deer panting for water. We long God. Um, uh, Ecclesiastes says, Solomon reminds us that in the midst of everyday life, that your heart has been wired for eternity, to always look past planet Earth. Then Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he describes our longing for God as a groan that is within us. We groan for certain things. So, let's borrow a page from communication theory. When we want to lay something out for people to think about, we always use the problem-cause-solution motif. So first thing you do is you convince people that there's a problem. You're never going to motivate people to do anything unless you first get them to believe it's a problem. And then what are the causes of the problem? Then what's the solution? All we're going to talk about this morning is what's the problem. We want to lay out a problem for our non-Christian friends to think about. By the way, it's a problem for us as well. That's why this is a beautiful thing. It's not that we're pointing a finger at them saying, you all feel this and I don't. No, I feel this equally as much as you do. So what's the problem? Here's the problem. If we were created for this planet, let's say there's no God. Let's say we're all evolutionary beings. Then this is home. We ought to feel comfortable here because this is our home. There is no heaven. There is no God. So why aren't we at home with planet Earth? Why are we always looking at something past planet Earth and human desires? Uh, One award-winning author said this. I thought this was interesting. John Cheever once observed the main emotion of the adult American who has all the advantages of wealth, education, and culture is... Now think about that in Orange County, all the benefits that we have. You know, he thinks our number one emotion is disappointment. Hey, it's not that we don't love marriage. It's not that I don't love my job. It's not that I'm not pleased about this, that, or this. It's just, there's just slight disappointment about it all. And I kind of wish there was something more. That's God whispering in your pleasures. See, we don't want to look at people and say, well, your life is just miserable. You're you're just miserable. I know you are. No, don't tell me you're happy. Because I know deep down inside you're really miserable. But that doesn't work with college students, right? I mean, we at the University of North Carolina, and they're a Tar Heel. You don't look at them and say, deep down inside, I know you have this existential angst, and you're really miserable, and they're like, hey, dude, whatever, right? No, we want to look at people and say, life is good. And because of God's common grace, life is good, but it could be better. And it's the could be better part that we all just intuitively feel. Now, our job is to get people to see that as part of the conversation. Lewis said this, do fish complain of the sea for being wet? Or if they did, would that not indicate that they had not always been or were not destined to be sea creatures? So if earth isn't our home, if we just can't really make it fit, then maybe that's an indicator that home, that earth is not our final home, that we're hardwired for heaven. 
Now, all we got to do is use pop culture to show that all of us wrestle with this. Okay, so I have a book here. It's going to be for sale in the library. I wrote it with J.P. Moreland. Uh, it's called The God Conversation. How do you use pop culture, the Oscars, television programs, The Walking Dead? How do you use all these great things to actually have spiritual conversations? And that's what The God Conversation is about. If this kind of resonates with you, this is all in the book, and you can just take a look at it. Um, Freud said this. Freud said, the key to success in life is make friends with death. Because death is inevitable. The mortality rate is 100%. You're going to die. Don't make it into some thing, morbid thing that you're afraid of. Freud said, you should make peace with death. It is a natural progression of life. There's nothing to be afraid of. Now that might make some sense up here, but it doesn't work here. So I came across a commercial that was recruiting people to be nurses. Now I want you to watch this commercial and let's observe it when it's done. Go ahead. What? <laughs> what? Listen, I tip my hat to hospice nurses. God bless every one of them. What, a, what an occupation, what a calling, what a ministry. But you're a hospice nurse. She's dying. She, she's dying of old age. Open the window. <laughs> Freud would say, open the window. And she's like, oh, what a beautiful tradition. <laughs> Why? Because there's something in us that looks at death and we go, it isn't right. We're not, it's not right. Freud, I get what you're saying. It's not right. There's something within me that recoils at death. Even the death of animals, we look at and we say, it's not right that this is happening. They died too soon. Right? So something's happening. Death is 100%. It is a part of life, of course. But we look at it and say, I'm not comfortable with it. And good for her for closing the window. <laughs> right? So that's a, that's a tip. That's a, as I almost fall. That's a tip that maybe death isn't natural. Maybe we weren't meant to experience death, right? It's just an indicator. Remember, we're just starting the conversation. We're not bringing in the gospel. We're not bringing in religious things yet. We're just saying, hey, do you feel this way? Because I, I feel this way. Okay, let's take a look at some more. Um, <clears throat> man, we have a desire for peace, but we are not peaceful people. Uh, we are animals when it comes to war. The ancients said, man is a wolf to man. War, uh, one writer said, Chris Hedges, war makes the world understandable. We could not understand the world without war. War has always been part of our DNA. Uh, a very famous historian, Will Durant, once took a look at all of recorded history and asked what was the longest we could go without having a conflict, a military war-like conflict. You know what the answer is? How long do you think we did? 29 years is all we could put together. So listen, just own the fact that you're warlike people, that you're an evolutionary being that forms community, but then you attack another community because you want it more. Welcome to the walking dead, okay? So let's just embrace that, but we don't. We fought two world wars to end all wars. We set up the United Nations to end all wars. We can conceive of peace. We want peace. We just can't pull it off. 
right? So that maybe is an indicator that this warlike existence that we have today, that we weren't made for this, that this isn't our home. There's a better version where we actually um, take swords and beat them into plowshares, right? There, there is a vision we have of peace, a universal peace, but we just can't pull it off. Let's continue. Oh, I'm sorry. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm getting ahead of myself. Whoa, stop. Oh, Stephanie. Okay. All right, we'll come back. Yeah, okay, sit. All right, so let's take... I love it. This is a great woman. She is an awesome woman. And I'm only here for one more Sunday. So, okay, so... Um, the biggest one, I think, is love. The biggest one where it just doesn't work is romantic love. We're, we're crazy when it comes to romantic love. We drive ourselves nuts because we can conceive of like this all-consuming romantic love. My soulmate having a lover who accepts all of me. My wife and I do premarital counseling. It's great to sit down with these young couples. Oh, my word. We sat down with this one couple. I said, hey, what are you doing for your honeymoon? She said, oh, Dr. Milhoff, me and my husband, we're going to go to a cabin in the middle of nowhere. No Wi-Fi, no people, just us and our love for 10 days. I was like, you might want to bring Scrabble. You know what I'm just saying? (laughs) Ten days. Wow. Wow. But we can see it. We can see what perfect love looks like. It haunts us. It's there, but we can't get it. We can't get it in real life. Guys, I think of all the things I said to my wife at the altar. Oh, my word. Oh, I will always accept you. I I want to change you in dramatic ways. And she wants to change me. When we got married, Normie would say to me, why didn't you tell me about these things? And I was like, I I wanted to marry you, duh. Right, yeah. I did. I looked her right in the eyes. I said, I will always love you unconditionally. Unconditionally. Spoke at a marriage conference. A woman came up to me and said, what do you mean by unconditionally? Well, un means no conditions. She goes, that's kind of whacked. I was like, um, I'll embrace you. I'll always be there for you. I'll, right? So we can conceive of it. We just can't pull it off on a regular basis. You know, I have many faults, but I can do Valentine's Day. I can do Valentine's Day, right? So one day I read this article about the top 10 ways women rated that you love them, right? So I put them on a clickboard and I did all 10. Chocolate, check. Flowers, check. Romantic walk, check. Right? All, check, 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 check. I did all of those things and I was like, honey, that's awesome. That's great. Well, the next day I was like, I wanted to be selfish, because I could be, because I had residual romantic points. Right? Now, we had a disagreement. How long should those residual romantic points last? I think I racked up 10,000. But let's say I just racked up 5,000. That's good for a month or two. And Nori's like, oh, no, honey, I want that on a regular basis. Wow. 
But love gets us, so we turn to the movies. We turn to music to get it. And I got to tell you, there's some really cool indie bands out there today that are taking a hard look at love. One of my favorite groups is called Postal Service, and they did a song called Clark Gable, where they took a look at, so the song is about this guy who sees love like Clark Gable had it, you know, Humphrey Bogart, all those kind of guys, and wants it. So he actually rents a video camera, gets his ex-girlfriend, and they spend a whole week trying to film these romantic scenes right on the silver screen, and he can't do it. At the very end of the song, he says, I think Clark Gable love is a lie we tell ourselves to get past each day. Uh, There's another guy. He wrote a song called St. Valentine. He said the loneliest person in the world is St. Valentine. Why? Because he invites everybody in, but nobody can stay there. Nobody can do Valentine's Day 24-7. But it doesn't mean we don't long for that kind of love. So, one of my favorite, it's a great comedy. Some people say it's the best American sitcom ever made. And that is The Office. So, in The Office, you you immediately met two characters. You met Jim and Pam. Uh, They immediately fall for each other, but it's complicated because Pam is currently engaged but they're both pretty smitten with each other. So as America, we're like, oh, come on, they got to get together. They got to get together. Well, finally, in season three, Pam breaks up with her. So the engagement is off. Now America's like, yes, we're going to finally see a Clark Gable kind of love. And these are the prototype lovers. So you know what happens is they actually do get married. Then hats off to the office, the producers, because they have the courage to show you what life is like after marriage. And it's not going well for Jim and Pam. They have an unplanned pregnancy. Um, He gets his dream job in another state. So he's always leaving her on weekends and leaving during the week to go to his dream job. And she is not doing well with this infant. They're in marital counseling and it's not going well. This is the office. So there's a great powerful scene where Jim is again leaving. He's getting into a taxi. It's raining outside. And he waves goodbye to her and she can't even wave goodbye. She's so hurt. And And so he leaves and she sees the umbrella and grabs it and runs it out to him. So somebody on YouTube put together a compilation of Jim and Pam falling in love, and then they put in this really great scene, and after the scene, we'll have a conversation. So let's watch this from the office. We are haunted beings. We're haunted. We're haunted by Hollywood, and we can't pull it off. Even Jim and Pam couldn't pull it off. They couldn't do the Clark Gable love. We're haunted by 1 Corinthians 13. Interesting, two non-Christians having 1 Corinthians read at their wedding. We're haunted by it. Men and women, I've done some stupid things in my life. Probably the two stupidest things I've ever done is one, write a book on marriage. (laughs) And then write a book on uh, conflict resolution, how Christ would do it. And you know, honestly, when I'm sitting at my laptop, I can see it. When I'm sitting at my laptop alone, I can see it. I I can see Christian marriage. I I just can't do it on a regular basis. My wife, we've been speaking at Family Life, I think, 21 years now. Um, When we have arguments, I'd look at her and I'd say, you just violated page 36 of the manual. Well, you just blew past page 17, right? My wife, because she's a godly woman, we're at marriage conferences, she lies in the power of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> she does. People, people 
people walk up to her after listening to me up front and they say, oh, being married to Tim, you must laugh all the time. And Noreen goes, yeah, we, we love Tim. <laughs> hey, and this is what I love about this. This is called the argument from desire. Uh, C.S. Lewis powerfully articulated this. But here's what I love about the argument from desire. I'm not looking at a non-Christian marriage and saying you guys are just deep down inside really unhappy. I'm not looking at other people saying you have this angst in your life. No, because of God's common grace, people can have good marriages. People can have good careers that actually provide a level of satisfaction, both Christian and non-Christian. What the argument from desire is saying is you still pant for God. Even if you have a good marriage, there's something more, and you have that inkling that there's something more. I can appreciate life, but there's something I thought would be more. So, you know, I quote C.S. Lewis a lot, but I must say the other person who's influenced my thinking the most is Jean-Paul Sartre. Sartre was an atheist thinker, an existentialist. After World War II, the world was in disarray. How could we treat each other like that? How could we do that? When we learned about the concentration camps, how could we do that to each other as human beings? Europe was in a disarray, and it was Jean-Paul Sartre. I actually went to a Paris cafe, sat in the seat that Jean-Paul Sartre wrote many of his works, and he saved Europe. But even Sartre, who rejected Christianity, even Sartre said this. I think it's a brilliant quote. Sartre said this, even with Beethoven, Even with Shakespeare, I want something more. I want something more, Sartre said. So the very first thing we're going to do with our non-Christian neighbors, friends, co-workers, is we're going to be transparent. We're going to have a conversation about how, how are your relationships and how's work. And you know what? Sometimes I just kind of wonder if there isn't like a little bit more, if there's just something else out there. Like something, I'm hardwired for something more. And I think it's a great way to start a conversation. Now that's going to be predicated on the fact that you love these individuals. Man, when we do studies on individuals when it comes to conflict, here is one factor that overcomes every other factor. When you know you and this person has a beef with each other, here's the number one factor we identify as con theorists. I know if you love me. I know it. I can intuit it. I can feel it. And if I know you love me, then we can have a really hard conversation. Right? And disagree. Remember, my master's thesis was bringing together the gay and Christian communities to have a really hard conversation about homosexuality. And for six weeks, I had them foster not love, but likableness towards each other. Empathy, sympathy. And at the end, they still had a really hard conversation but they, they felt like, but I, I feel like you care about me and, and I can hear what you have to say. Men and women, God calls us to love people. And if we don't love people, that's the first place to start. So if you've got a non-Christian family member, if you've got a non-Christian friend or boss or neighbor, and you walk through that neighborhood at night walking your dog and you think, you know, I just don't have compassion. That's a great place to be, right? Remember what Lewis said, don't pray what's supposed to be in you, pray what's in you. So I think the first step is to say, God, I've never shed a tear for a non-Christian family member. I've never shed a tear for a non-Christian neighbor. And I don't know why. And I just pray that you soften my heart. Because if those individuals know that you love them, 
you can say some pretty hard things. So the first thing we're going to do this week is let's identify the people that God has brought into your life. And second, have compassion towards those individuals. I pray for some sleepless nights that we would sit there. Either we're sleepless nights because we just don't have the compassion or we're going to have a sleepless night because we have an unceasing grief and we just can't get to sleep. Men and women, if the church does that, if we do neighbor love, people are going to look at us and say, you know what, I do disagree with them. I don't, I don't buy their take on these issues. But these are people who love deeply. Uh, so the very first thing we're doing is we just establish the problem. Next week, we're going to take a look at, well, what is causing the problem? And then what are some solutions? And then I'm just going to pray that we have some great fruitful uh, conversations. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you that we're your ambassadors, that we represent you. Thank you that uh, Jesus died for us. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation that came at great cost. I pray for the people in my life who don't know you. I pray that you give me a, a, a deep sensitivity towards them. And I pray you'd give me opportunities to talk about you, what you've done in my life. Father, life is good in a fallen world because of your common grace. But it could be so much more. It's so pale in comparison to what we're going to finally experience. So Lord, we love you. We are your ambassadors. And we pray for courage, sympathy, and a a way to structure these conversations. All in the power of your spirit. Amen.